We finished last week with a question, not last week, three weeks ago with a question. <laughs> Was there something we were supposed to think about? Yes, have you thought about oh, it? I know, I already knew the answer. Whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you also gave the answer in your sermon that same day. There we go. What was the question, Erin? What does Christ's sacrifice save us from? Right. What does it save us from? Aaron already knew, and I apparently... Uh, death? Okay. For us. <laughs> Separation from God. All right. Separation from God? Sin. Sin? Aaron, you know the right answer you're thinking? I think that all of these answers are right, and they kind of all roll into... What are you going to say? God's wrath. Yes, yes. So if we look uh, to the scriptures, Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And this is the kind of thing that Christians even get very uncomfortable with. Uh, they feel like they have to defend it and they're not really able to. The idea that it's God himself who has wrath against sin and sinners, righteous wrath, and that it's God's wrath then that comes down upon the Son on the cross. And from the skeptic's point of view, this is absolute absurdity. Like a father who gets really angry at his kids, and instead of just going, okay, calm down, they're just kids, he punches himself in the face a bunch of times or something. And they say, this doesn't make any sense. Why does it? And why is it important? Well, crickets. <laughs> Sean thinks it has something to do with crickets. I think you might be on the wrong... Margaret. Um, God's wrath, he could just take it all out on all of us and wipe us out. Because we just haven't lived up to his expectations. Now to play devil's advocate, that, that father could have done the same thing to his kids, but he doesn't because that'd be so messed up. Yeah. So why can't God just calm down, <laughs> simmer down, and uh, get over it? Because Christ had to suffer and die for us. I think that's circular, though, because we're saying, why did Christ suffer and die for us? So the answer can't be because Christ had to suffer and die for us. I think maybe the answer has to do with the context of this, which we may have lost at this point three weeks away from the last class, which was, the question was, how does Christ execute the office of priest? I think that's at least helpful. Is it the justice part of the answer? I think so. Yeah. Uh, unpack that. Well, because sin actually does require a penalty. Right, yeah. So if your child slights you and from a human point of view and you get angry, that's perceived on your part. That's not, you know, you, and, and you've done that to your parents and everybody's offending everybody all the time. And you got to teach your kids not to freak out about this kind of thing. When we offend God, it's a perfect, perfect standard that we are offending, and it's a perfect God. And when, for example, people want to, to rail against the idea of God having wrath against sin or the notion of hell, they say, how could any, I mean, is this in any way a proportionate response? I 
do some things that are bad, sure, but then I'm sent away from God's presence to the outer darkness forever. And you have to remember, even in our own criminal justice system, it doesn't just matter what you do, it matters who you do it to. I mean, you kill a mosquito, no one cares. You kill a cat, Sean might think it's funny, but we're calling the authorities, right? And we're, we're, gonna, we're worried. If you're a kid, we're like, ah, people are robbing that. Uh, you kill a person, we put you in prison. You kill a child, we throw away the key and try to execute you. You kill the president, we definitely make a big deal out of putting you to death. So the offended party matters. And in the case where our sins have been a continual rebellion against a perfect God to whom we owe our allegiance and our life and every breath, it is, uh, it is right that he would be full of wrath against sin. And the amazing part is that he was willing to bear that wrath. And when someone says, well, hold on, if, we, if it's a debt, why couldn't God just forgive the debt like people do, right? Rather than having to have Jesus come and pay it. In fact, even in his own um, parables, there's the king who just for, has mercy and forgives the debt. Why, why does that not work, Aaron? Isn't that what he's doing through Christ's sacrifice? Right, yeah. So when it, if, if you owe me uh, whatever it was, like $10 million or whatever that crazy high debt was in that parable, and I forgive it, I've paid it. It doesn't just it doesn't go away. So in, it has to be paid. And in this case, it has to be paid. And the, the grace and mercy of God is seen at the same place where we see the wrath of God against sin. And that's at Calvary. And so, yes, he has wrath against sin. And that is ultimately what we are saved from at the cross. And that's not preached that often. And I, I think it's because the world wants a, a less uncomfortable narrative. And we want to give it to them, so they'll want to come to our churches. But it's starting to drift away from the core of the gospel the further we get from this notion. And when you emphasize the wrath at the cross, you're missing the point. The wrath is a foregone conclusion. Like if you jump off a building, it's 100 stories tall, you're going to splat. You don't blame the gravity, you blame the guy. The, the wrath was a foregone conclusion. The amazing thing is the grace is that you see God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That he, he said, I will take the pain and the death and the shame and the sin and the guilt instead of you taking it. Do you think that's not preached as much now partially because people don't do a lot of preaching through the Old Testament? Because you see tons and tons of God having wrath and then forgiving it, or, or um, the people repenting, there's forgiveness. You see the whole sacrificial system, which I don't think most people really learn about all that much. Like, if you don't have that background, it's mm -hmm. hard to understand. It's harder. I also think it's a cultural thing where grace has been redefined, and it's been turned into the dad who says, it's all right, I love you anyway. And that's not what grace is. I had a long conversation with a fellow pastor this week in which that was grace again and again was framed that way. And I went, hold on, back up. That's not grace. Grace is not uh, calling good evil and evil good. That's, that's sin. That's wickedness. Uh, calling evil evil and then Christ coming and paying for those sins. That's grace. Unmerited favor. 
So I think uh, it's important to remember, and when you are praying and thanking God uh, for what happened at Calvary, that it was indeed God's righteous wrath that we're saved from, and we're saved by Him bearing that upon His shoulders at, at, at Calvary. And it's hard to even get your mind around how can they be one essence, three persons, and one of them is pouring wrath out on the other, and that's kind of... that disconnect and discomfort is kind of part of the whole thing that the the even within the trinity there's a kind of a rift and a looking away from from uh the son by the father for us it's also god doing this it's hard for me to put this in the words is him showing us how consequential our sin is i think so yeah it's not he can't be the dad says i'll forget it because it's way too consequential to him that so we also looked at the cross to see the seriousness of our sin. Spurgeon has like infinite amazing quotes about this, about, you know, if, if a man had stabbed my brother to death uh, for fun, he didn't say it this way, but essentially, I'm paraphrasing, um, I can't spurge, sorry, um, and I just became his best friend, what a betrayal that would be to my brother. And if sin did this to my Savior, you know, so we see the seriousness of sin and the cost attached to it. And so the cross is a reminder. Um, I, I've always been kind of a fan of the, the crucifix. People know this. It's one of my weird things. And uh, the, the thing is, it works in theory for me, but in practice it doesn't. Because you watch the mob movies or you go into a Catholic hospital where these things are everywhere. And instead of being constantly reminded of the cost of our sin and the price Jesus paid, it becomes blended into the background and people will just curse and swear and take the name of Christ in vain or, you know, order a, somebody to be whacked or something, you know, right, right, and it's right there. And it kind of becomes nothing instead of constantly drawing our eye and, and reminding us that it's everything. Um, in a way, I guess that an empty cross kind of does still have that effect for me anyway, uh, to, to remind us that Christ paid the ultimate price as our great high priest. He went in, and I mean, you guys remembering, Aaron talks about the Old Testament, Mount Moriah, right? Abraham's going up the mountain with his son, and he's walking up. His son has the wood on his back of the sacrifice, right? And he says, but where is the animal? And Abraham says, God will provide. They get up there, he binds Isaac, and he takes out the knife, and he's got the fire ready to go, and everything's ready to go. And then God does provide. A ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Uh, angel says, don't touch the boy, etc. And I mean, this is, this is what, what hill is Mount Moriah? We're, we're, we're dealing with the exact same thing. This is foreshadowing Jesus. And when Jesus, our high priest, goes up, the mountain, which is a recurring motif for going up into God's presence. He goes up the mountain and he's the priest. And we're going, he's got the wood on his back. All, all these things fit together. And we're going, where's the animal? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the offering? And God will provide. The priest himself will lay down his life and be the lamb as well. It's just mind-blowing stuff that our priest knowingly lays down his life. I don't know of any other religion where that ever happens, uh, much less where that's the foundation of it. The great high priest 
is also the once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, So all of these things have been framed as in his humiliation and in his exaltation. These prophet, priest, and king, these offices he has uh, executed. So how does Christ execute the office of priest in humiliation versus in exaltation? That's a bit to chew on, so I'm just going to... Say it one more time. How is it that Christ executes the office of priest in humiliation and in exaltation? Well, the humiliation would be that he is the sacrifice. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the whole, what we just celebrated in Holy Week, the whole thing is one long humiliation. How is he priest then in exaltation? Well, he ascends and he is mediating between us and the Father, just like the priest is mediating between the people and God. Very good. You get a gold star, and I'm going to give you a kiss later. Um, That's on the table, Sean, so give me a good answer. This is such an important part of the priestly role, and we gloss over it all the time. Jesus says it is finished. What's finished is paid in full. The sacrifice is, is taken care of. The priestly role remains. He doesn't take off the ephod and throw it in the trash. Don't need that anymore. He is still our high priest. There is, not there was, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So there's two parts to his priestly office. There's his satisfaction on earth, and then there's his intercession in heaven. That right now, Christ at the right hand of the Father makes intercession for us. He's not, he's busy. He's he's working and he's, and he's working on our behalf. And he's still human and divine. He's still that bridge between God and man. And that is something to remember as well. That when you pray to God, you, you, the, the basic formula for Christian prayer is, and, and I think that both Luther and Calvin stray from this sometimes and pray directly to Jesus, and that's fine. But to the Father, through the Son, by or in the Spirit. And, and the idea of praying to God, knowing that we have an intercessor right here at the right hand of God and also holding us in his right hand is just perfect for having a relationship of blessing, a relationship that deepens, a relationship of, of uh, intimacy with a God who is so perfect and holy, he has wrath against sin, but that wrath has been meted out. So his priestly work continues. It's not done. John eleven forty two. 42. I know that thou hearest me always. Because he hears Christ always, he hears us. Always. Because Christ, as high priest, is always open. There's nothing more for my, my table saw stopped working last week in the middle of building an entertainment center in my basement. And I called the craftsman number. I was going to be like, what a joke. These tools are supposed to be. And I just got this recording like our hours are between 9 and you know, 9.30 every morning or something like that. And Jesus is always there. He's always there. He's always ready to intercede on our behalf. And I don't know whether Scripture speaks to this or not, but it seems to me that even when God comes Uh, to dwell amongst us in the eschaton and heaven comes to earth and earth therefore becomes heaven uh, because it's God's abode that still Christ's role will be to intercede. I hope it is. uh, We need him so much 
And that's the core of our religion. And so when we just throw off prayers thinking, well, God hears us because he hears all his kids and we're all his kids, that's missing something very important. He hears us because Jesus, the great high priest, brought the sacrifice of his own blood into God's presence and now continually sits at his right hand making intercession. Okay, I have a question that's maybe slightly off topic and you probably can't answer, but... Oh, I'll make some up. <laughs> if, if Christ still intercedes for us, then, on the new earth, are we to assume that we will not be perfect? Because if we were perfect, wouldn't we be like Adam and be yeah. on directly to God? Yeah, no, we will be perfect in the sense of having been glorified. Right. I, I don't know that it will be needed, that we, will we can't... Will make mistakes? Will we still... Yeah, I, it, it doesn't seem... Still pain or tears, but yeah. is there... I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. We all get smarter. I, I think much of the, the annoyances and struggles of everyday life are uh, results of the curse. Right. And I know that what makes work sometimes not fulfilling but horrible is the result of the curse uh-huh. and what makes for interpersonal right. Right. Okay. um when i say i hope he does i just mean i hope that they continue <laughs> the same role i was being semi-facetious oh. um, but the idea that we we by reflex go to jesus to talk to the father um you you do that when you pray and you say at the end of your prayer in jesus name amen how many people do that in the bible Literally none. But it's a good thing to do. You're praying in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, if you ask for anything in my name, and it reminds you, I'm going to God through Christ. I'm going to God in the name of Jesus. And it's because Jesus brings me into the presence of God that I can be there. And when the scar is still on Jesus' hands, and he, I, I don't know, I just see his role as ushering us into the presence of God. Uh, it has been the role since Way back in the Old Testament, when Satan is still in God's presence accusing, and Jesus is there saying, uh, you know, washing the dirt off and, and saying, put a white robe and a clean turban on his head, this kind of thing. I don't know, I'm gonna, somebody's going to hear this and uh, write a treatise to me about how that whole thing was unbiblical. But There's a tiny little thing that is written down here at the bottom in parentheses that I wrote at some point, and I haven't read it. In 10 years. I'm going to read it right now out loud and we'll see what it says. Let us, oh, I didn't write this, or, or did I? Let us keep in mind that it was not Christ's divine nature. No, this is Lorraine Baitner who said this. Let us keep in mind that it was not Christ's divine nature, but only his human nature, which was subject to suffering and death, as it was only his human nature, which was subject to temptation, hunger, thirst, sleep, etc. While we do not fully understand the relationship which exists between his two natures, we have a faint analogy in our own persons in which a spiritual and a physical nature are united. And on the basis of our own experience, we know that what he experienced in either nature, he experiences as a person, that is, as the God-man. I don't know why I put that there. That should have been under a different question. But yeah, the whole idea of without dividing or confusing the two natures. So it, it applies to this idea of him being priest because being fully God and fully man, he stands in the gap. Uh, but don't blend those together and don't put a wall between them. Any other thoughts on Christ as our high priest? I kind of wish we would have gotten through all of that before Holy Week. <laughs> 
All right, let's move on to question 25. So this is the, the third. Uh, this would have been good for Sunday school on Easter, but, you know, we were all eating breakfast casserole, also a good uh, pursuit. Um, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That is great. How about an old-timey sermon illustration? The Roman emperor Julian, a determined enemy of Christianity, was mortally wounded in a war with the Persians. In this condition, we are told that he filled his hand with blood and casting it into the air said, O Galilean, thou hast conquered. During this expedition, one of Julian's followers asked a Christian of Antioch what the carpenter's son was doing. The maker of the world, replied the Christian, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. A few days after, news came to Antioch of Julian's death. Snarky. This is, you know, we, we have the notion of, and I don't have a whiteboard, and I don't need one, I guess, uh, God's being intimately present with us, his imminence here with us, down here, and his transcendence. And when we talk about prophet, priest, and king, we're talking about both. As a, a prophet, he's here with us and bringing God's word into our presence. As a priest, he spans the, the two, and then as king, he's on high. And we think about um, Mary's uh, what must have been just spontaneous praise of God, uh, talking about how he raises up the humble and he just knocks down kings and rulers, you know, like he's ordering a pizza. Again, paraphrasing. Uh, but he is sovereign. He's the king of kings, the king of all. And thank God he's for us. And if, the, I mean, if that king is for us, who can be against us? Well, anybody, but it's futile attempt. Uh, someone look up for me 1 Corinthians 15.25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's a good one to commit to memory. For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And that, by the way, that word until there, akri in the, in the Greek, it's one that's often debated in eschatology, end time stuff. Uh, if something says until, does it stop when the condition is met? Catholics and Protestants will debate about it. Joseph had no relations with his wife until the son was born. And we say, see, Mary is not perpetually a virgin. Uh, and they say, no, 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 not necessarily. Until might mean up until and continuing. And we go, oh, until can't mean that. Yes, it can. Because Jesus continues to reign even after he has put all of his enemies under his feet, he will continue to reign as king. But even in the interim, now, he is reigning. Let's just break this down into the uh, little prepositional phrases. By subduing us. So he's a king who conquers, and he's going to conquer all of his and our enemies. But first, he's going to conquer us. What does that mean? What does that look like? I think that probably, especially Americans, don't like that idea because we've not had a king. Mm -hmm. And um, but it, 
it only makes sense. I mean, a king rules over people, right? And you have to obey that person. Right, yeah, and if you're not being subduing yourself, submitting yourself to a king's rule, he's not your king. So for him to be our king, first he subdues us. He defeats us as king before he redeems us as savior. And everybody's testimony, their story of how they came to faith is the story of God defeating them. Uh, Karl Barth, I often quote his, his summation of Christmas. It's God coming to earth as a stealthy intruder under Satan's radar to come and take you out to, to defeat you and to defeat me so that we then are, are in submission to him, serving him, and now his enemies are our enemies. And when he defeats his enemies, he's defeating our enemies. In, in, a, in a sense, he came on a crusade. When, when, you know, the reason they called, I mean, the word crusade comes from the word crux, Latin for cross. The reason they called the crusaders crusaders is because before they went off to, uh, you know, fight and kill, they put big red crosses on their chests. And so they were the, these guys who were cross soldiers. But Jesus came on an actual crusade. He came via the cross. And at the cross, he died. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, when Christ died, you died. And when Christ rose, you rise. And so we're tied to him in that way. Uh, it's, it's a very sneaky plan. And no one saw it coming. Not even the people who were experts in all of the documents that explained that it was coming. Uh, it, it's for, for those who have been conquered by Christ, it's the best thing in the world. For those who haven't, they often kick against the goads, as it were, you know, get out of my way, goads, um, until, until their legs are bloody nubs. And then they finally just give up. And, and when Christ comes for his own, uh, he changes our hearts and we are conquered. It's a, a wonderful thing. So he's, he's subduing us. He's ruling us. And we as Christians, again, we, we proudly and happily and joyously say we are not our own. We're bought with a price. What does that sound like to the world? You don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. It sounds like slavery. And we're like, yeah, kind of. In fact, we're called slaves of Christ and we love it because he's our king. We, we have been bought back from uh, the debtor's prison by him and we owe him everything. But we are free. We're more free than anyone else. So to declare independence from God is the very definition of sin. And the wages of sin is death. And then there's the one that's most comforting and the most straightforward way, and that is defending us. Uh, Acts 18, we'll get there in just a few weeks. Uh, Acts 18, 9 and 10, somebody else read that. I don't know why, but King James pasted in all over the place here. 18, 9 and 10. Oh, you're not looking it up, you're writing it down. I think when I read the uh, catechism in the flowery old language, I just get in this King James mode. Look it up, Kim. Just trying to make it more dramatic. Somebody's got it. It's very dramatic, though. I thought you'd want to redeem yourself after getting here late. Oh! Sam, you've got it, don't you? 
Let's hear it. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. How comforting must that have been? Especially when we read about what Paul goes through earlier in his travels in mission work to hear, you're okay for now. In this city, no one's going to harm you. No one's going to hurt you. I am defending you. Uh, Second Samuel 22, we read, The Lord is my rock and fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Uh, two to four. And then, you know, throughout the Psalms, these are the kind of Psalms I often will read at the beginning of a, a funeral. Just reminders that God is holding us safely close to him uh, in life and in death. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That association immediately for Isaiah. He's our king. And we think, what do kings do? They rule their people. They exploit their people. They tax their people. No, he says he's our king. He will save us. He'll save his people because that's the kind of king he is. He's not a corrupt human king. He is a divine king and a perfect king. Uh, David Livingston very famously said uh, when he was warned again and again about the dangers of where he was doing ministry, uh, that he is immortal until God's work for him is done. One of my favorite quotes in the world. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. Again, until. Acri. After that, still sort of immortal uh, in a different and better way. But here on earth, I cannot be killed until God's purpose for me is complete. That's very freeing and very encouraging. So here, I think, is where a lot of this stuff... Uh, I mentioned that when, when uh, the producer of the White Horse Inn, one of my favorite radio programs, uh, went out into a, a big convention center of Christian retailers and stuff, he asked the question, what does God save us from? And only two people out of like 180 that he asked said from the wrath of God. Another group said from sin. Another group said from death. You know, things that we go, okay, yeah, these things are biblical. And the biggest group said from ourselves, which is quite a politic answer. Uh, I think that we place that in the wrong category if we say that's why Jesus died. That's what the priestly function of Jesus is about. This is what the kingly function of Jesus is about, defending us. He defends us from harm. He defends us from spiritual harm. He defends us from falling away. He defends us from Satan, from hell, from sin, and from ourselves, certainly. And this is our great hope that it's not going to be we're saved and now we're on our own and we're going to drop the ball and we're going to lose our salvation. No, he is going to be with us. He's a, he's a very involved king, involved in the lives of his subjects, involved intimately. Is that right? Is it only 10 after? We have time? We have more time? Okay. Uh, I think that a, a great segue here is to talk about that passage in Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Both of those uh, are kind of emblematic of what Christ does for us as our defending king. 
In fact, that's what a shepherd kind of is for his sheep, right? He takes care of them. He defends them. He rules them. Yeah, he's got to tell himself that sometimes. I'm in charge of these sheep. <laughs> and then one of them wanders off. He's like, no, I'm not. Never. Uh, and, and he conquers their enemies. Remember David uh, saying, when he's like, I don't need your armor. I don't need any of this stuff. I'm just going to go kill that guy. He's like, you're tiny. You can't do this. And he says, what, what are the two anecdotes he gives? And a lion, right? He, and how did he do it? With a, a bow and arrow from far away, like, like Hawkeye? No, he, he takes a club, grabs it by the mouth, which, by the way, is the sharpest part, and then just beats it to death. And that's a picture also of what God does for us. He's a good shepherd. This is a picture of Jesus. I have this great uh, graphic novel called Proverbs and Parables, and it's all different comic book artists taking proverbs and parables and making them into two or three page long little comic vignettes. And uh, one of them is, is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I care. And, and it's Jesus like standard, like, you know, sash and robe. And then a wolf comes in and it's this crazy bloody fight. And at the end, the wolf is dead and he goes back to his sheep. And the first time I saw it, I was like, yikes, it seems a little brutal, but no, that's the picture Jesus painted. I'm that kind of shepherd. I will defend you. I will care for you. Uh, the rod and the staff are two different things. This isn't Hebrew parallelism. Uh, the, in fact, um, the staff, that word shevet, can mean uh, kind of a tribe as well. But generally, it's the shepherd's staff you're thinking of. Uh, in fact, let's look up a couple other occurrences of those words. The word rod, meteh. You'll find in Psalm 110.2, to which someone's turning now. What are the odds that if I upload the audio of this to YouTube, it will get blanked out because I did that for a second? Are you also recording when you do the Mario stuff? No. Mario's? No, no Mario. Sean's got it. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. That word scepter, same as the word for rod. So it is an item that started out functional, right? A scepter is not a random thing. It just looks cool to hold. It's a ceremonial weapon. Because going way back to earliest human history, that would be your weapon. You got rocks and you got clubs. Uh, and your biggest, baddest warlords, the guy with the biggest, baddest muscles and the biggest club. And, and so the scepter, the rod, it can, it can mean either the ceremonial kind of thing, which can be just as deadly if he you know, points it at you uh, when you come into his presence, or the actual functional rod. And I think it's good that both apply to Jesus. He does hold a scepter, meaning he is sovereign over the whole world, but he also gets down in the mud with us and defends us and fights for us. Psalm 2.9. Thou shalt break them with a rod, of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, so that is a very 
graphic picture as well. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Psalms. Here we go. 2-9. Messing with you. The P is silent. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so we're looking at a God who is both guiding and defending a God who will defeat all of our enemies and his enemies. And let's talk about that for a minute, conquering his and our enemies. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the lamb, which sounds like it should be super easy. And the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Sounds like another good one to commit to memory. They'll make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17, 14. This is going to happen and be fulfilled when the European Union adds the 19th member. I'm kidding. <laughs> this, this is now, of course. Uh, and, and this is also looking further as you get later in the book of Revelation each recapitulation has more emphasis on the end, on the kind of final conflict. Uh, and so it also is, is something that will ultimately uh, be fulfilled when Christ uh, comes and makes everything new. And it's going to be, it, it's going to be a, a good day for us because we are with him. And therefore, his enemies are our enemies. He will conquer his enemies, meaning he will conquer our enemies. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Uh, let me just read three more passages to you. That way I don't have to make everybody flip. I can feel there's some lethargy in this room today. Sam, you seem a little bit up and peppy with me. Steve, yeah, you're with me. You're just out of it, man. <laughs> Levi up crying last night late? Yeah. <laughs> So Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So yes, we're called slaves of Christ or bondservants of Christ, but we've been freed from slavery, lifelong slavery, to Satan and death and sin, freed to serving Christ. And if you've been freed, then you signed up to be his bondservant forever and you would have it no other way. So you're a slave to do it. Right, yeah. You're either, you're either a slave to sin and, and, and death and self and, uh, and it's a lifelong slavery and it ends with a horrible rude awakening or you are a, a servant of Christ and it ends with eternal bliss. Dibs. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Ultimately, Satan himself will be defeated. In the book of Revelation, we see him thrown into the uh, lake of fire. Uh, and ultimately, all of uh, our enemies will be defeated. And the last enemy that will be defeated is death. Uh, and this one's a little longer. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 27. 
We don't have time to go on to a new question or a new section, so I'll just read it. Um, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So believing in the Trinity, we see the Trinity as reigning over everything else, everyone else. And the Westminster Larger Catechism, I don't know why it's shorter and larger. Doesn't it seem like it should be shorter and longer? It's always shorter and larger. Uh, Is a little bit different here in, in its answer. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So certainly we could have stretched out the answer and filled in an awful lot more. Being a king is a multifaceted job. I wouldn't want it. We'll start, I think, next week with talking about how does this look uh, in humiliation and in exaltation. Because like last time, it was easy to see how Christ was priest in humiliation and a little harder to get your mind around how he can be our priest in exaltation. It's the opposite here. It's easy to see how a king can be king in exaltation, but how does he execute that office in humiliation? Maybe mull that over a little bit. uh, And, you know, every night, sit down with a glass of wine and just think on that one question for two, three hours, and then come back next Sunday with a brilliant answer. And then Sean will poke holes in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful, gorgeous day and those who are here in the house of the Lord. Uh, And we just pray that you would be with us and and open our eyes and our hearts to your truth, Lord, that as we lift up your name in in song and praise, you would uh, show us more and more of your character and who you are. You would fill us more and more with your spirit. Lord, we do pray uh, that we would leave this place more uh, like your son, Jesus, and, and Lord, more determined to be the hands and feet and the voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that as we take the Lord's Supper today, you would be with us as well, that we would take it in a worthy manner, and that we would remember that uh, in this bread and cup, we encounter you, our living God. And Lord, may we be humbled by it and strengthened by it. And, And also, may we find food for our souls, just as bread and drink feed our bodies. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.